Okay. Um, I was told in an email that I should give a three to five minute grace period from now on, so I didn't start on time. Um, but I figured that was, you know, that's, that's being merciful, I think. Anyway, um, no, it's fine. Uh, so this is the final. Where is put somewhere? Um, the final Sunday school for this series, and um, we're kind of going to be talking about uh, sort of, kind of, we are, but you'll see uh, the Lord's Supper today. So um, I'm hoping to connect pretty much everything that we've said for the last 11 weeks to today um, and show us, you know, why, why that influences. I mean, basically how all of this influences all our theology. So, um, so with that, you know, I know that, uh, I think Hal said, uh, uh, he's, he's teaching next. Um, and then, um, not sure who else after that. So the point is, is I won't be. So um, I'll have a little bit of a break, as much as I've enjoyed this. Anyway, so um, if you want to, we'll read uh, one of the classic texts, um, 1 Corinthians uh, eleven twenty three through 26, 23 through 26. And then we'll go from there to Revelation 1, 12 through 16. So Revelation 1, 12 through 16 after that. Um, and then, of course, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time. This is the word of God. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, This, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Revelation 1. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his, in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the, like the sun, shining in its strength. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Oh, Lord God, we, we thank you again uh, to join together on this Lord's Day, Lord, on this, um, on this ordained day of the week together. Uh, Lord, it is a blessing for our souls to do so, and Lord, may we see it that way. And God, um, as, we, uh, as we go through um, some of these texts in, in, this, in this Sunday school today, God, I pray that you would, Lord, that you would, that you would edify us, Lord, that you would strengthen our souls and our faith. Uh, in you, and to see how glorious our God is. God, prepare, prepare us as always uh, through all these things um, to uh, go into worship, Lord, that we may worship the one true triune God. 
And Lord, also I pray um, that the things I say today, Lord, that they would, um, uh, they would be carefully placed, and Lord, that you would uh, keep me from error. In your name, amen. Okay, so, you know, the first one, the quintessential sort of Lord's Supper text, right? And uh, the second... Uh, maybe seeming a little out of place, but the reason why I chose these, and you know, we can take a lot from these as always, but the reason why I chose these was because I want to highlight, especially as pertaining to the Lord's Supper, I want to highlight that the Bible consistently, consistently talks about Jesus' Lord's absence, especially in the Supper, right? That, that's what I'm trying to bring out, especially in the, the first verse, or in the first passage. It talks about the Lord's absence, okay, especially in the supper, especially as we partake of that supper. Yet at the same time, the Bible also consistently talks about Christ's presence, right? Christ's presence is king of the church as well. So the whole point of all this, especially today, like kind of what we want to focus on is what do we, what do we make of this, especially considering all the things that we've talked about so far, um, and, um, and I'm hoping you see, especially in, in Revelation 1, that contrasting those two passages, that, that Christ does, he says, for as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he's come. So he's gone. Um, but at the same time, he walks in the midst of his church always. Okay. So the point is, what do we make of this? Well, going back a little bit, and yeah, a lot of this is just kind of, um, uh, I don't mean to downplay it because it's important, but it's kind of, Helping us to connect all of the dots to see where this leads us, especially um, especially as it terminates uh, at the Lord's Supper, which we're talking about today. But so to kind of go back, uh, I think Dirk is um, not in here today, but Dirk kind of uh, he posed a question a couple weeks back, and it was saying something about uh, he said he was asking, and I talked to him afterwards, and I was trying to understand what he was asking, but he was. He was asking, like, in some way, aren't all of Christ's actions um, arising from both natures since he subsists in two natures, right? And I would say, yeah. You know, I would say in some sense. So, in other words, we could, in a way, say that all of Christ's actions are attributed to both natures. And that's, and that's kind of where I would stop. And but but why is the reason? What, what what's the reason why we would say something like that? Because persons act. Yeah. So he's one person. Uh, that's the reason. I mean, that's that's the simplest way I know how to say it. Because Christ is one person. Okay. Again, this is important as we go forward. Um, I'm not going to go through all of it again, but I'm going back to our confession of faith, um, chapter eight, paragraph two, and I'm focusing on the end of it. It says it, it says it this way. Um, it says that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Okay, so to kind of sum up, we already said, and I know I'm going back again, and I am, again, um, just laying waste to this dead horse. Um, but we said, um, natures aren't persons, right? And we'll go from here. So natures aren't persons. Okay. I I think, I think we got that. Instead, what we would go further to say, and we've kind of explained this in, uh, the lessons following that we said that natures were, 
um, the principle or principles of action, right? Principles of action. Okay. If you have any questions, just stop me. All right. So the so the natures of the principles of action, not the action or agent itself. Okay. Not the action or agent itself. That's very important. Okay. Persons instead are the person is the agent or actor or the one who acts. Okay? Everybody with me so far? So we're just we're just briefly going over everything that we've covered. Um, persons are the actors or the agents of an action. That's very important. Thus, an action is properly an action is properly one, right? Everybody understand where I'm going with that? The act arises from the person. So the action, because the person is one, is one. Yet in Christ. We have how many natures? Two. So the principles of action are two, right? Therefore, we could say that each act that Christ does, or in the case of his humanity, receives as well, um, arises from two principles. So basically what I'm saying is, again, persons act according to their natures. Persons act according to their nature. So that's just the technical way to say it. Um, for us, so Christ's actions and each act that he does is proper and arising out of his nature. Okay? Everybody got that? So human beings act according to their nature as well, right? This is just a contrast. So human beings act according to their nature as well. But our natures, like you and me, are how many? How many natures do we have? Of one nature, okay? One nature. So, Christ the person, being both human and divine, acts according to two natures. And that's what I mean. That's all I'm saying when we say that Christ in some way, or in some sense, because he subsists in two natures, acts according to both. Now, I'll, I'll continue. This is how we can properly distinguish between his natures without making him two people. Okay, again, this should all be. Uh, hopefully, you're all you're hearing this again, and you know it's 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 sinking in if it hasn't already. So, for example, for example, moving on, for example, when we talk about him, when we talk about him, it's like as being as being crucified and dying, okay, uh, or as being buried, or as walking this earth, or as being ignorant, or as being beaten, okay. We can we can actually say all of things or all of these things or in all of these things, I'm sorry, um, that God can be placed into these categories as well. Well, why is that? Why is that? Based on what we've said so far. What's that? Yes, but because he's... Because he's one person. Yeah, but, but you're exactly right. You're exactly right. So because of his human nature. But in this case, because all of these, all these things, being crucified and dying, everything, um, is predicated to person. Okay? So we don't distinguish 
or separate the person. The person's a unity, okay? The person's a unity. So in this case, we're talking about the person of Christ. Yet at the same time with all of these things, being crucified and dying, buried, walking this earth, all those, with all of these things, it's proper to say that we can, at certain times, distinguish the principle of each action. Okay? Does it make sense? Okay. So we can distinguish the principle of the action or the nature that the action itself belongs to. In this case, all those things we were just talking about can be predicated of Christ's humanity. Yes. So this is, this is the point. If I know I say this every lesson, um, but ending this series, I know I'm, I'm super repetitive. I'm, I'm, I'm not sorry. Um, um, uh, if there's nothing else that, um, that we get from this, um, that, that something that you could take away and apply to all of your theology about Christ is that, is that is where to distinguish and where not to. In the person of Christ, there's a unity. Okay? In the person of Christ, it's unity. Yet, in the nature's diversity. Okay? And how we properly relate those two is going to affect everything. Okay? So you can take that, uh, as they say, to the bank, um, I believe. So as you're reading the Gospels, as you're, as you're reading about Christ, that's something that you can, you can apply to, to all of your Christology especially. So that's my, uh, that's my mini-sermon for that. Okay. Um, so this is what we mean, though. This is what we mean when we talk about the... Um, I had another term. We talked briefly about it. Actually, we spent a lesson on it, but... Uh, let me erase this. This is what we mean when we talk about the uh, the communicatio idiomatum. Um, briefly, what does that mean? Communication of properties. Communication of properties. Yeah. Perfect. Communication and properties. Yeah, just a fancy term for communication and properties. So we're referring to the natures, right? So when we talk about the communicatio idiomatum, and this is important, the very definition assumes, the very definition assumes there is no confusion between the natures. That's the idiomatum part, okay? There's no confusion between the natures, yet at the same time assumes there's no division in the person as well. We see that? We see that? Tell me no if, if, you, if we don't. Okay. It assumes there's no division in the person as well. And I think to, to really um, stamp this into our minds, I want to reread. We read it one other time, but I want to reread the Chalcedonian definition one last time, okay? It's worth it, I promise. It says this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like us, yet without sin, begotten before all ages according to the Godhead in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, 
Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the Son and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. And my mouth is dry. Um, yeah. No, I'm okay. I'm just, I was like, wow, that's a lot. That's a mouthful. Um, so, the short lesson for today, and really the thing that we want to focus on, when we assume and having defined all the things that we've just talked about, so that was like a quick run through of like basically everything we've learned so far. Um, when we assume that having defined all these things, apply it to the things fundamental, apply it to the things that are fundamental to Christ, like the hypostatic union, as mediator and holding the threefold office. It's easy to see, I've already kind of made my point about this, how it influences the rest of our Christology. So, especially as it regards to the Lord's Supper. So, going into that, especially regarding the Lord's Supper. So, what about bodies? Bodies. Like a human body, not like uh, planets or something. Am I the only one that automatically thinks like planets instead? Okay. So what about bodies? I'm asking this because I'm asking, can a person be said, it's kind of a loaded question, um, said to be truly or fully human without a body? Think carefully. It's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I'm asking. Okay. No, I mean, I'm, I'm asking. What do you guys think? I have my own theory. I'll put forward in a minute what I think. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So uh, again, kind of a loaded question. Um, uh, admittedly. I would put it. I put it this way. Um, I'll ask it this way. What's the constitution of man? What is what is man to be a, a person? What what do you have to have? Rational soul and body. Rational soul and a body. Okay. Rational soul and a body. So body and soul. Point of me. The point of me saying all this. I'll get to. I promise. I'll get to it. I promise. So body and soul. So. Bodies are part and parcel to the human nature, right? So part and parcel to humanity and being human. Doesn't, that's why, again, that's why death is so unnatural, okay? That's why we, we want our bodies. That's why the body is a good thing. Um, it's substantially joined. So, so the human who is a body and soul. It's the best way I know how to put it. So bodies or any other created thing, really, um, bodies have a location. They always will. They have a location. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. The reason for this, as we have seen, is because our understanding of Christ, 
Our understanding of Christ as mediator requires him, as we've already said, what? To have both natures, right? Both natures. And part and parcel to the human nature is what? Having a body. Okay. So, if we start to say or begin to think, well, in order for the person of Christ to really be a person, then wouldn't it follow, and I'm not the only one that makes this argument, it's a whack argument, okay? It's whack. <laughs> but, but in order for the person of Christ to really be a person, then his humanity must be present to the same extent as his deity. True or false? Okay. But if we do that, though, and here's my, and here's my thing. Maybe I phrased that wrong because I was looking for a false. Um, yeah, like to the same extent, like to the same degree. Everybody was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, everybody, everybody, was, like, everybody was like, yeah, of course. I was like, did I do something wrong? Okay. Uh, anyway, so if we say that, though, my point is this. If we say that, we, in essence, destroy the nature of his humanity. Because his, part of his humanity is having a body, and by nef- definition, humanities and the bodies belonging to them have the very property of being finite and confined to a specific location, right? Okay. If we go beyond this and alter his humanity in any way, or his deity, but in this case his humanity, because we're talking about the supper, in any way... Um, both during, during his humiliation or after his glorification, then, then we've really, and I hope you can see this, you know, again, based on what we've learned so far, then really we've destroyed the things foundational to Christ actually acting as mediator in the first place, which is kind of scary to me, so I don't want to mess with that. Um, he no longer essentially, here, here's my term, has the metaphysical equipment to be mediator, Right? You guys are laughing. One day, one day that's going to appear in a book somewhere. Um, not by me, but anyway. Um, so, so the point is this. And by the way, um, I'll get there. Um, so when we're talking about Christ and we're talking about the Lord's Supper, okay, we say that therefore Christ is really present at the Lord's Supper. Would you all agree with me? Not the real type of presence that Roman Catholics say. No, that's not what I'm saying. But he is really present. And we can say this the same way that we can say that the Lord of glory was crucified. So we're going back to the communicatio again. So we see where that applies. Because Christ exists beyond the flesh of his body. Does he not? This is called, this is, there, there's a proper name for it. Where is it? Where do I keep putting my? Uh, I probably I probably do keep putting my jacket. Anyway, okay, so I'm losing I'm losing these things. So um so we call this the extra Calvinisticum. Again, just a fancy way of saying that Christ a Christ beyond the flesh. So, Christ exists beyond the flesh of his body as deity is present everywhere. Okay? Makes sense. Makes sense to me anyway. This is why we, with the rest, I mean, 
the rest of the Reformed, really, um, should and do affirm a real presence of Christ at the Supper because Christ does exist beyond the flesh, okay? Not just as a presence because Christ is omnipresent according to his deity only. No, like we would all affirm that, that, that Christ, God, fills the world, yes. But at the Supper, a presence because of our communion with him as his mystical body, okay, as the church. It is a partaking in all the benefits of redemption by being in him, in Christ. So when we say, when we eat his flesh and we drink his blood, we really do partake in the benefits he secured for us by faith, okay? And that's the key, by faith. And the reason that we can do that is because of this, okay? You see, so he can be in heaven, he can be bodily in heaven, yet present with us, right? This is, this is the amazing part. So, so all these benefits, and these benefits that are communicated to us, um, they're objective. So it's, it's as if we are, during the supper, actually lifted up to his throne, in a sense, okay? I mean, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know what does, Okay, we're lifted up to his throne to actually dine with our Savior spiritually. Okay? It's beautiful. And this is, and this is what's so amazing to me about it. That the Lord's Supper also, it's not just that, but the Lord's Supper points us to the day when we will dine with Christ bodily as well, which is, which is super cool to me. Um, I know that's kind of, again, a crass way of saying it, but it's awesome. Um, I don't have much left, but I wanted to read Revelation 22, um, Revelation 22, 1 through, uh, 1 through 5. And remember all this coming after, too, um, the bride being presented to, to the Lamb, the bride of Christ, um, coming to the, to, to the marriage banquet. Think of a feast. Think of the Lord's Supper here. In Revelation 22, 1 through 5, it says, And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservant shall serve him. And they shall see his face and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads and there shall no longer be any night and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illumine them and they shall reign forever and ever. The beatific vision, seeing Christ face to face. So while now when we go to the Lord's Supper, and I wish I had been able to teach on this last week, um, but as we go to the Lord's Supper, we dine with him spiritually in expectation that we'll, we will one day dine with him, you know, really and bodily as well. Um, so let us then, when we do partake in the supper, by faith, know that because Christ is mediator, because he is prophet, priest, and king, because he is God and man, because he is able to stand between us and God, that we have a special kind of real fellowship with him. And in the supper being a means of grace to us, being a means of grace to us, our faith is strengthened by these very facts, okay? Really strengthened. 
and that one day we will again dine with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth and look into the face of the Lamb. So I don't, that was relatively short today. I don't have anything else for you. Um, are there any comments or anything like that? Or questions or anything else? Yeah. When we come to the Lord's sake, uh, Lord's supper, where do y'all typically feel in your soul when you're coming before the Lord? What does that mean? I'm asking y'all, like honestly, what, maybe y'all are just tired and y'all want to get service over and it's time to go eat. Humility. Yeah, <laughs> humility, that's a good one. Another one? But what's a, a, another maybe feeling that you have? And see, that, that, that's actually really interesting because it was something that I thought was curious. There is a true humility that needs to be had when we come before the Lord. But brothers and sisters, when we read that passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians, and it does tell us to examine ourselves, it also tells us that is in the expectation that we will commune with Him. And that we are coming before Him now to confess our sins, humble ourselves. And come before him, we will have spiritual communion. So we should have humility, yes. We should have repentance, yes. That is appropriate at the Lord's table. But it's a feast. We should have what? Joy. Yes. We should have abounding joy because the God of the universe, our Creator, our Savior, has called us, has beckoned us into his glorious presence to commune with him. That's what communion is all about. And as we look at that supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death and Him coming again where we will see Him face to face. And so let that be a, a pinpoint in your mind when we come to the Lord's Supper again. Yes, it is a time where we confess our sins and we recognize that we are not worthy. But Christ has made us worthy. He has brought us into His communion with the Father. And that, that is one of the delights of coming before the table it is one of the most joyous acts. And so let that pinpoint your heart when you are coming before worship as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Yes, be humble, but be, do it with utter, utter joy that your God is working for you and with you. Amen. Amen. Um, I'll just add to that um, uh, that we do have to make sure that when we go to the table that we don't make Repentance, the stipulation for approaching the table. Okay, yes, we should repent. But objectively, objectively, there are no preconditions for approaching the table if we exercise, if we have, if we're in Christ. Okay, so I'm not saying don't repent. Uh, You should. Um, So that's coming before the table with humility. But as we, as, as we know that Christ exists beyond the flesh and we, flesh and we, we partake in a spiritual supper with him, we sh- because of that, we should understand that the benefits that are procured for us, that's why I said, are objective. Mm-hmm. Okay, despite how we subjectively see ourselves. Yeah, bro. Bro, so, you can preach that. Well, I'm trying not to be too preachy, but the point, the point of it all is, don't make, um, because I have done this before, don't make your repentance or reading those passages in 1 Corinthians and so on and so forth into... 
I must repent. I must be worthy to come to the table because you're not anyway. Yes. And let us just underscore this. God called you. You don't make yourself worthy to come before the table. God makes you worthy. He says it as plainly here in Hebrews 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg. No further messages be spoken to them. Speaking of Moses, where they were afraid to approach God. But what does Paul say, or the author of Hebrews say? For they could not endure the order that was given. Oh. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But here's what the author says. But you, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festival gathering is a party at God's place. To innumerable angels in festival gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And here, this is a, and most importantly. And you have come and you have, God has called you. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator, as he has been teaching us. The mediator of the new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. God prepares you. And how does he do that? Jesus. He is the one who came and has brought his servants, his attendees, into God's party. That's joy, brothers and sisters. That's joy. Have that be the foundation when you take the supper. At any time we come before him in worship. Yes, we come in humility, we confess our sins, but we do it knowing that Christ will cleanse all those who have faith in his objective promises. If you want to be cleansed, come this day. That's why we should take the word Eucharist back. <laughs> Thanksgiving. Yeah, we should be thankful. Anyway, uh, Randy, would you pray for us? for me.